Leadership Part 6, Negotiation Supremacy Through the Physics of Leadership. So the physics of leadership has three basic laws, and it's really the human condition. So if you're dealing with people, the physics of leadership controls. And a negotiation is no different. It's a leadership problem where you want a person you're negotiating with to give you a good deal, to get what you want out of the conversation. Essentially, you want to get them to do what you want them to do. And when you master the physics of leadership, you won't just get people to do what you want, you'll get them to want to do what you want them to do. And back when I was a major, I was an army JAG. We all had to spend a year to get our LLM, our master's degree in law. And one of the units in the contract law curriculum was negotiation. So we took these classes and at the end of the unit, we had to conduct a negotiation with a case study. And later on, I found out that the case study was created to be unwinnable. And the whole idea was that even though students wouldn't be able to resolve the issue, the exercises would put into practice the lessons and the techniques that we learned. And they set aside two hours for each student to pair and conduct the exercise and it was proctored and graded. But what they should have done was told me before that it was unwinnable because I finished the negotiation in about five minutes and my opponent had walked away from the negotiation with more than he'd ever dreamed he'd get. And when we shook hands and he looked at me in the face, he wasn't sure that he should get up because he was afraid that he'd lost. And he looked at the instructor and shrugged and said, are we done? And the instructor took me aside afterwards and he said nobody had ever Kobayashi Maru'd the negotiation case study before. And if you don't know what the Kobayashi Maru was, it's the iconic Star Trek episode that where it's the unwinnable space encounter where the Starfleet captain is supposed to rescue the vessel and then it's ambushed by Klingons and it's kind of a no-win situation. But Captain Kirk beat it by reprogramming the scenario so that there was a weakness and then he took advantage of it and was the only person in Starfleet to ever beat the Kobayashi Maru exercise. And the fact that he told me I just Kobayashi Maru'd his case study exam was actually even higher praise because this guy never praised anybody. He was like the most aggressive, vicious litigator in the army. So yeah, I was pretty happy to be done with his class. And I'm going to get into the details of that negotiation. And it went quick, but I'm going to get there in a second because I need to cover some basic psychology and neurological hacks when it comes to negotiation before I run through the five-minute negotiation algorithm that I followed to Kobayashi Maru, the Army JAG course negotiation capstone exercise. So the first thing I want to talk about is cognitive dissonance. And what that is, it's the discomfort that someone's ego experiences when they're forced to admit being wrong. So during the negotiation and conversation, we can leverage subtle conversational agreements to create cognitive dissonance to keep some people we're negotiating with from squirming away. And what I mean is that you can do things that will make it difficult for someone not to resolve the issue. In conversation, you can pose questions like, do we have everybody we need in the room to put this to bed today? Or more bluntly, do you have the authority to make this decision? Because you don't want them halfway through the negotiation to say, oh, well, I don't have the authority to actually do that because it's kind of an escape hatch that someone can use if they want to dip out. But if they agree on the front end that they want to make a deal and settle the issue in the meeting, then if they say they have the authority to decide the matter, then cognitive dissonance is a tool that a negotiator will leverage at the outset to psychologically wrangle the other party to help them close the deal. And it can also be used to set the tone for the negotiation, especially when you think of a divorce situation. In a divorce negotiation, this is a big one. And if you ever find yourself in a divorce situation, before you go any further, be sure 
sure to check out the Sonic Gravity episode Psychopathic Forgiveness. But in the divorce scenario, you want to cover things like the authority to make the decision, agreeing not to interrupt one another, agreeing to be reasonable, agreeing to be fair, things like that. And agreeing to be reasonable and agreeing to be fair is very useful when you're negotiating contract dollar amounts because it's when you want something or there's something that they want and there's not really a baseline, then it's kind of just you and them. But you can use cognitive dissonance to lock your opponent into agreeing that reasonableness and fairness is what we're going to go by. Because then you can bring in things like market averages for the same types of services or value creation that your proposal will deliver to the other party to set reasonable fees. And so you can set these anchor points for negotiations. And you don't want to just get hung up on the numbers. You want to look for asymmetric value in time and collateral. So if it's an employment negotiation, don't forget about the parking space or time off or paternity and maternity leave to have the authority to reconstruct uh, positions and or make organizational changes. Or if it's at a restaurant, free meals. So one part of being prepared to go into a negotiation is thinking about all the things that they can do for you to grab some of that asymmetric value. And it's also, I think, a good productive use of time to think about all the asymmetric value that you can create for them, especially the things that won't cost you very much or the things that you're absolutely willing to part with, like job titles. And don't forget about social media and digital currency. If you're negotiating with a party that has millions of followers on social media and money is a sticking point for whatever reason, never underestimate the value of retweets and shares to millions of potential customers. People can create negotiable value to barter that way. So now let's recenter on the physics of leadership. And if you haven't seen Leadership Part 1, The Physics of Leadership, then definitely check that out and refresh your memory about what the physics of leadership is all about. So the first law of the physics of leadership is that everybody wants to do the best for themselves as they can. Leadership transacts only uniquely in the individual minds of other people who receive your leadership, and your leadership impact is going to be determined by the way you make people feel about themselves and their priorities. And we know this is true because we know from the third law of the physics of leadership, people will remember the things that they feel because feelings are what matter. Feelings are what sticks, and if someone doesn't leave you with any feeling, you'll forget them and their name almost immediately. But if somebody makes you really happy or makes your day or makes you angry, you will remember that for a very long time. And some feelings you'll remember for the rest of your life. So when we're negotiating using the physics of leadership, the physics of leadership informs our negotiation strategies and tactics, and it also counsels us as to how we can be most effective with the language that we use during the negotiation. And so during the negotiation, one of the things that we want to do is make sure that they talk as much as possible if they like to hear themselves talk. And sometimes they'll start talking about themselves or things that aren't necessarily business related. And one thing that I learned from Afghanistan negotiating with the Afghan locals is that there are cultural differences in Afghanistan. They don't get right to business right away because what matters to them is who you are, not what you're offering. And so if you want to successfully negotiate with someone who has different values like that, you're not going to get very far if you demonstrate things that are important to them aren't important to you. And sometimes you got to just go with the flow. And if they want you to talk about things that aren't necessarily specific to the negotiation or the deal, then you got to be prepared to make that decision to decide whether or not you want to let them take you down that road. Because the more information that they know about you, the better they'll be able to negotiate with you. And if you think about it, like if you're just starting out now and this is your first potential client and they say, well, tell me about your other clients. You need to be prepared for that because if you don't have any, you'll need a response. And if they know that they're your only potential source of revenue, that, you know, that could put them in a dominant negotiating position where they can offer you less with the reasonable expectation that you'll take it because they're all you've got. But if you're prepared with a response like, well, you know, I really appreciate 
appreciate your curiosity about that, but I'd prefer to discuss today what I can do for you and all the value that I can bring to your operation because one of our core values is loyalty and confidentiality. And what happens at your company stays at your company. And I believe that all of our clients are all different. And in negotiating with other potential clients, I'm going to keep our discussions and our business confidential too. And I hope that you can respect and appreciate that. So you might need to do some mental gymnastics about those kinds of questions to make sure that in the conversation, you're not giving away information that would put you at a negotiating disadvantage. Anyway, the more they talk, the better they'll feel about themselves probably, and the more favorably they'll remember us, and the more information they'll give us that we can use to negotiate with. And when the other party is talking, it's a great technique to get into the practice of mirroring the things that they say. And all that is, whenever they finish a sentence, you just repeat the last three or four words of whatever they just said. And all you're doing is echoing the exact same words they said, but for some reason that makes people feel like they're being hurt, and it makes them feel like you get them. They like that. Don't ask me why, but if you mirror them, they'll probably feel that way. And remember, the third law of the physics of leadership means that you're going to do better if they feel better about themselves when you're conversing. So if somebody says something that you already know, it's better to say, you're right then I know. And if they give you a concession or they give you something that you want, always try to remember to say thank you. That's always a good idea to let them know how much you enjoy collaborating with them and even how well the negotiation is going and you appreciate their consideration. And here's a great technique that if you're a psychopath, you're going to be really good at. And that's when somebody asks you a question. If you can maintain eye contact and a pleasant disposition, and if you can tolerate an uncomfortable silence, because most people feel that silence is uncomfortable comfortable and a lot of people will continue to talk to fill that silence and give you more information that can help you negotiate and sometimes they'll even start negotiating against themselves and they'll do your work for you so it isn't necessary to fill silence if you don't want to and sometimes it's better if you don't so I've already kind of touched on this but let's talk more specifically about anchoring this goes back to cognitive dissonance a little bit and it most often happens when it comes to pecuniary and financial dollar amounts and contracts, but it's also relevant to other qualitative metrics like child custody or divorce negotiations, where if you can get the other party to agree that we should decide things in the children's best interest, as opposed to what the other parties and what their interests are, then the discussion can be more grounded about what's better for the kids instead of about what's better for the parties in the case. Because you're never going to get somebody to agree that the best scenario is one that they don't win, but you can always get somebody to agree that the best scenarios one where their kids win. So anchoring is probably one of the most critical aspects to the negotiation to take the initiative on to drop the anchor. And I think a lot of conventional wisdom exists around not being the first party to give a number. And maybe that works for some people, but the people who think that are always the people that I hope I get to negotiate with. So yeah, anchoring. Always be the first to throw out a number when it's appropriate, but the key is to throw out a range that is much higher than you'd be happy with, but not so high that it's unjustifiable based on the supportable range of numbers for the same thing in that industry. Or you can define reasonableness another way. Like if you're an attorney, you can ask what the firm is intending to build the clients for your work. 
how much an hour are you going to be billing? Because if it's an hourly rate, then you can negotiate what your salary should be based on the value that the company is going to get from hiring you. Or if you're applying for a position within a contractor in an organization that does business with the federal government, you can look up on the GSA scale, which is the contract arrangement that's been pre-approved by the federal government, and you can look up and see what that company is going to charge exactly for your time on a particular government project. It's all written down right there. And so if you're an analyst and you're going to work on a certain contract, then you can actually look up and see what it was that your employer is going to be billing the government for your work. And if they're billing you out at 200 an hour, then you might be able to make a fairly strong argument that you're worth 75 or $100 an hour. You know, 100 for you and 100 for them. If, so if you're a graphic designer, you can set up a web page with a logo similar to a prospective client's logo. And then you can set up a web page, a clone web page with a logo that you create. And you can hang it out there. And then you can compare what Google Analytics tells you about the page's engagement and the difference between the logo you designed and the logo that they have. So if you want to sell a logo design service, you can come up with some research that says my logo is better than yours. And the delta in that traffic and the value of that traffic over time is a great start point for that negotiation and will help you make the case for a higher valuation. And then if you anchor them around a range that you would be extremely happy about, even if it's the lowest number in that range, then you're going to feel extremely happy about that number. And they're going to think that they've negotiated the best price because they got you to go all the way to the bottom of your range and you just let them think that they did a great job because anchoring is a lot like the illusion of choice and if you haven't seen my episode on controlling destiny and the paradox and the illusion of choice then maybe check out that episode if you're interested in that it works because they will generally try to drive you to the lower end of that spectrum. So you want to make sure that the lower end of that spectrum is something that would make you happy anyway. Okay, so now I want to talk a little bit about starting the conversation. And this will be effective in a negotiation. This is also an effective technique in job interviewing. And so whenever we're going to start a conversation, I'm going to do it with the physics of leadership in mind. I don't say, can I get some of your time or can we schedule a meeting? You see, that sounds like work for them. And we know from the first law of the physics of leadership, they're not going to want to do a whole bunch of extra work. They want to do what's in their own best interest. And the third law tells us that how they feel, how their first impression, the immediate feeling they perceive when we emit our sonic gravity, feeling that they get is going to determine whether or not they're interested in staying around in our orbit long enough to find out what we have to say. So for instance, back in 2015, I visualized an algorithm that will peel up insider trading networks in bulk transaction data. So if I would have taken this to a stock exchange and left a message with the chief executive officer and I said hey I came up with this idea about how to peel up insider trading networks in bulk stock market transaction data and since the SEC will award whistleblower awards of up to 30% of the dollar amount of the fraud as an award I wanted to line up some meetings for some potential partners who can capitalize on the value of my algorithm in that space who are in a position to collect the transaction data that is necessary to fuel the algorithm blah 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 so when a leader a manager hears that they're going to automatically visualize the potential windfall that they'd be entitled to if they ran this algorithm over their bulk stock market transaction data. And so it would be irrational for them not to blow up my phone and try to get a hold of me before another exchange did. So I'd never start a conversation or lead off with, hey, can I have a minute of your time? Or 
hey, have you ever considered, you know, that just sounds like static and that phrase might be enough to shut them off immediately. So I think we need to show immediate value with a sense of urgency so that they may feel that if they don't act now that they'll miss out and give them enough information to want more, but not so much information that they'll wish they had less. Or you approach some kind of district manager for American Eagle or some other apparel outfit and you say, hey, you know, there's a one of your outlet stores is near my neighborhood and from time to time I'll go over there and I see that the merchandise in there is marked down sometimes as much as 90% and I think I can double or triple your revenue on that if you consign me that merchandise and then I will take the time that it takes to market it online for a 15 or 20% consignment fee. So the apparel will be 35% off and 45% will go to American Eagle and 20% will go to me. And even if they talk me down to 15%, it's still huge and I'm not even putting up any capital to do anything. So practicing these concepts in negotiation, like tactics like anchoring and mirroring, and cognitive dissonance, will make you very successful all by themselves in future negotiations. In negotiations with clients and friends and your boss and management and shareholders and customers and your spouse and your kids, everybody because the physics of leadership is the human condition. So it's going to work everywhere, all the time, every time, for everyone, in every situation, for the rest of your life. But I think the thing that will set you apart as a negotiation dominator is what I call asymmetric value creation. And I think at its core, it just comes from being a habitual critical thinker. And if you want to know more about critical thinking, check out my three-part critical thinking episodes, uh, one, two, and three. But the longer you practice critical thinking, the more you will perceive and detect elements in the universe that you can assemble to create value in negotiation. One of the big ones is time. If you can see the universe through time, and I talk about doing it a little bit in seeing through temporal impossibility in Killer Conviction and the Cure for Imposter Syndrome. But if you can see the universe through time, then you can create asymmetric value, and it's just as easy to create asymmetric value that way as it is to just spontaneously conceive in the time it takes to assemble a single thought, a zero capital investment, web-based American Eagle overstock Amazon retail business that could make someone a millionaire in a year just for the purposes of illustrating a physics of leadership principle in a podcast episode on negotiation. It's all just asymmetric, nonlinear, critical thought. So now you know everything you need to know to Kobayashi Maru, the JAG Corps Negotiation Unit Capstone Exercise. And in this exercise, I represented the federal government. I was contracting over a year to build a building for $200 million. I was negotiating with a construction company, Snag, in the construction process, and there were errors on both sides, and they were demanding $70,000 and additional contract change orders that were legitimate claims, but I, as the government, had no authority to pay them because the budget was $200 million, and that was fixed permanently. And there was nothing that could be done about that. And so as the government, it was my objective to pay no more money, but at the same time try to get the contractor to repair the work that was shoddy and get them to bring in more workers on site to pick up the pace of the project which is falling behind. So here's how I Kobayashi maru that whole negotiation exercise. So I invited my opponent to sit down and, and I just asked him to tell me what he wanted. And I told him that I had the authority to settle this matter right now and I asked him if he had the same. He said yes and then I said, well tell me what you want so I can give it to you. And 
and he kind of looked nervous, like he didn't want to tell me. And so I sat there and waited and let the silence speak for itself, and then he started talking about the things that he needed and wanted, and he started rattling off the list of all the stuff that he wanted. And I said, okay, you got it. I said, I can do that, but I need your help. And then I listed all of the things that were on my sheet, the extra work that he had to do in order for me to be successful in my, my negotiation and the metrics. And then he goes, well, I can't do that unless you give me more money. And I said, well, how much do you need? And he said, 140000 And I said, okay, well, I'll give you 140000 but I need this and this and this and this and this. And can you help me with that? And and he said, yeah. And I said, I think I can help you. Except the trouble is, is that I don't have the authority and nobody has the authority to go any higher than 200 million on this project, which is already earmarked for you. And what I hear you saying is, is that in order for me to get all the things that I'm asking for, I need to come up with 140,000, is that right? And he said, yes. And I said, okay, well, and I was mirroring him the whole time as he was speaking too, right? And I said, well, this is a $200 million project over a year. And the only way that I can think of to do this is if you execute a modification to this contract that will involve a prepaid escrow of $4 million to you that you can then hold on to that $4 million in an interest bearing account should you choose to do so. And then if you can figure a way how to hold that $4 million in escrow in some kind of instrument that pays you 3.5% or more interest, then you will have $140,000 of interest in a year time. And then I can offset $4 million worth of your invoices until we zero out the balance of that prepaid escrow. Does that make sense? And so he said yes. And then I was just kind of filling out the paper with the terms and everything. And I could tell he was concerned that he didn't win. And so he said, well, let's make it 5 million. And I said, sure. But then in that mod, you're going to need to waive all future claims, delays, overruns, and waive any kind of compensation for future change orders less than a million dollars for the rest of this contract. Think of it as insurance for that extra million in an escrow. Everything's on you then from now on. And he said, okay. So he went in there looking for 70,000 and he left with a $5 million prepaid escrow. And I got all the increased labor to get the project back on schedule. I got him to fix the shoddy work. And then I got a bunch of extra stuff that I just threw in there because I was on this massive power trip in the negotiation. I just wanted to make him say, sure, we'll bring the snacks. I got like a donut table with coffee for the workers and visitors and new PPE. And then I got him to waive all future claims and take responsibility for all future delays and changes. And I didn't pay a penny above the $200 million budget ceiling. I got everything I could think of and gave them nothing, except the asymmetric value of money through time. So I could pay them with the interest that they could make by holding the funds in escrow. And the other lesson, the thing that it shows is that in a negotiation, there doesn't need to be a winner and a loser. Both parties can win big if the negotiators are critically thinking and negotiating with the physics of leadership in mind. Even if some people think that the negotiation is really a Kobayashi Maru. And that is a fact. Thank you.